Amen. Good to see you today. Um, boy, this was a great week at our church. We On Monday, we had a, a seminar on fraud and people trying to rip you off. Two of our law enforcement veterans, Steve Beezert and Devin Chase, put on this seminar, and it was, it was amazing. They also had a thick packet of information for us that was really helpful. Well, if you weren't able to be here... Um, we videotaped the whole thing, and so as soon as it's, we, we don't have it up on the webpage yet, because Pastor Justin, who's going to put it on there for us, is he, he just had, uh, had, he gave, he donated uh, his, um, uh, what do you call it, when he, he gave a transfusion to his brother of, of, of bone marrow, because his brother um, was ill with, um, what's it called? I'm glad this is a psalm where David's getting old because I feel, but yeah, and so anyway, he's a little weak because he's a few quarts low on blood, so when he, over the next week or so, we'll try to get that, um, you know, put up on the website, and they're scanning all the documents, and so that'll be downloadable on the website as well for free, so um, be looking for that over the next couple weeks on our website as we, as we do it. Um, but then Wednesday we had Together, and Together was amazing, and we had some different people do the Mexican food, and it was just unbelievable. It was so good. And then Friday, the ladies had their Bunko and Bananas night, and I heard great things about that. So it's always the more things we can do that get us together with each other, the more things we can do that just allow us to, to learn and to grow um, it makes for a great week. And so we're looking forward to what God's going to do as we move into the future as well. But right now we have 2 Samuel 21 to worry about. We're going through the book of 2 Samuel and we're coming to the end of David's life. And 2 Samuel 21, and it might seem like I say this almost every week, but you come across one of these chapters where it's like, oh no, how, how do you make sense of this? How is this really going to translate into something helpful? I promise you, this story that we're going to look at in 2 Samuel 21, there's no other church that's teaching on it this morning because <laughs> it's a tough one, but it's a part of God's word. And since we're going through 2 Samuel, we're stuck with it. And I believe that God has reasons why the Holy Spirit put it in the scriptures and things that he wants to tell us as a result of it. So let's just dive right in. The first part of the chapter, the first 14 verses, is a story about uh, ultimately um, God condoning human sacrifice in order to stop bad weather. So you ready for that one? <laughs> Verse 1. There was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, why did he wait three years before he ever prayed about this? I don't know, but I've certainly done the same. 
Um, And the Lord answered, It's because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So the Gibeonites were people who were there in the land of Israel up in the north. They were a Canaanite culture that were there before the Jews came in under Joshua. And so you're talking about, you know, 1400 or so, that as they came into the land, the Gibeonites, rather than fight the Jews, as so many other people were doing, they heard how what had happened at Jericho and also. So the Gibeonites put some guys together and dressed them up like, like uh, they were all worn out and, and wearing dirty old clothes. And they claimed to be from, oh, Gibeon, it's long ways away from here, but we traveled all this way because we're excited about you guys having your new land and we want to make a peace treaty with you. So Joshua signed a peace treaty with the Gibeonites, not knowing that they were plopped in the middle of the land that had been promised to them. But a deal is a deal, and so they kept that rule. And all through the life of Joshua and all through the time of the judges, they were at peace with the Gibeonites because the Gibeonites were, we have a deal. Well, apparently sometime while Saul was king, um, again, it's you know a, f- a few hundred years after the deal, he turned against the Gibeonites and slaughtered some of them. Now, this isn't recorded in 1 Samuel. We don't know what exactly when it was, exactly how it happened, how he justified it. But apparently, Saul just got, you know what? These people are in our way, and we're just going to wipe them out. But he, he killed a bunch of them, at least. But we don't know how many. All we know about it is what's in this chapter. So now here, God is saying, Here's the problem. It won't rain because 40 years ago, Saul killed Gibeonites, violating a treaty that was 400 years old. That's why it's not going to rain. David's like, okay. So he figures, I better go talk to to the Gibeonites. And so the king called the Gibeonites. I don't know how he got their number. but And spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them under Joshua, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. So David said to the Gibeonites, look, that was wrong. Happened a long time ago. What can I do to make it right? I want to have peace with you people. And so what shall I do? And with what shall I make, you know... um, With what shall I make atonement, payment, that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? He goes, how can we be good? How can we resolve what had happened in the past? And the Gibeonites said to him, we don't want money from Saul or from his house. Like, we don't want you to give us a bunch of Saul's stuff. We can't be bought in that way nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. We don't want you to hunt down whoever was involved in that. I mean, most of them are dead already anyhow. So we're not asking for that. And so then David says in verse 4, well, okay, whatever you say, I'll do it for you. He's like, just name it. I want to, be, I want to make right this wrong that happened for a 400-year-old treaty. And so they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel. So as far as this evil Saul and what he did to try to remove us as a people, 
let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. (laughs) They're like, we will go to his territory, we'll take seven of his descendants, and we will offer them as a sacrifice to Yahweh. When Lord is in all caps, it's the Hebrew personal name for God, Yahweh. So they're like, we're going to offer these guys to your God as a sacrifice, and we'll do it right there in an area where Saul's family comes from. And the king said, okay, I'll give you, I'll get you seven. Now, it wasn't easy to find descendants of Saul. A lot of them had been killed already, but he managed to find them. And you're starting to go, wait a minute. You're going to sacrifice humans to God so that you can get better weather because of something that happened 40, 50 years ago. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, because like I already have a deal with this guy. And so he, he's like, whew, thank God for my wheelchair. And, and the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, this is a different Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Allah, whom she bore to Saul. She was one of Saul's concubines, and so she had a couple kids. They were now grown, obviously. And the five sons of Michelle, the daughter of Saul, also the wife, two-time wife of David, whom she brought up for Adriel, um, the son of the Basili. So probably what, what it is is Michelle never had kids, because as far as we know, and certainly David wasn't, he was still mad at her because she was making fun of the way he danced, if you remember that story. But she was raising these boys who were probably her sister's kids. And so it's like, we'll offer them up. Now, if, if David wasn't at odds with his wife, Michelle, before, this probably put an end to most of their loving communication. He delivered them into the hand of the Gibeonites, verse 9. And they hang them on the hill before Yahweh. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest. In the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. Wow. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Allah, who two of these boys were hers, she was a concubine of Saul's, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she didn't allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. Seems kind of weird, but, you know, she was protecting the bodies of her kids after they had been sacrificed. So this is kind of gruesome. And uh, David heard about it. And so David went and got the bodies, the bones of Saul and Jonathan, who, as it says here, they were uh, they had been rescued by the guys from Jabesh Gilead, who, after Saul and Jonathan had been killed, they were hung on the walls of the city of Bet Shean, and then finally the um, the people from Jabesh Gilead came and rescued their bones, but they hadn't buried them yet. So David went and got Saul and Jonathan's bones and the bones of these guys that were killed in this bizarre sacrifice. And he gave them a decent burial. He brought all their bones down and buried their bones in the country of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, Saul's father. So they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. So is this a weird story or what? 
there's a, there's a drought, there's a famine. David waits a few years before he prays about it, and then God goes, this is really because of something that happened decades ago, where Saul broke a treaty. And so that's something that you need to make right with the Gibeonites because they got you know, ripped off. And so then he goes to them and goes, okay, what do you want me to do? Sacrifice seven of the descendants of Saul. And he's like, done. They sacrifice them, and then they're given a burial, and then it ends up raining and the drought's over and everything's fine. Now, does this seem strange to you that Yahweh would actually condone human sacrifice? It's so easy for us, to, and that's why it's easy to just skip this chapter, because it's a strange thing that it seems like God's behind this, and here David is doing this, and it just seems so wrong to us. Um, so, I mean, I wrestle with, why did it take so long before this happened? And how could, and there are commentators who say that while these seven uh, descendants of Saul were probably involved in attacking the Gibeonites, violating that treaty, but their ages wouldn't have been right. They couldn't have been. They would have been too young unless, unless they came on there on their big wheels and they're attacking Gibeonites. So how do you make sense of this? Now, there are a lot of things in the Bible that people don't teach on. And often, especially in the Old Testament, there are some people who just completely remove themselves from the Old Testament because there's stuff like this in it. But let's assume that God is good. Let's assume that everything that he tells people to do is right. Not just because he said it, but because he actually is loving and fair and reasonable. If you take that as a presupposition, now you can look at this and go, what might he have been thinking and why might this have been the case? You know, in philosophy, they talk about ethics. Ethics is the way in which you decide what's right and what's wrong. And there are often debates in ethics because there are some people who think that right and wrong is absolute. Either it's right or it's wrong and it's very simple. There are other people who say, no, it's not always that simple. Sometimes doing the right thing means doing something that would ordinarily be wrong. And yet in this circumstance, it actually is the best thing to do. And so ethicists go back and forth on this. There's Joseph Fletcher, who is really known for situational ethics. He was, a, he was an Episcopalian um, priest, and he was also a professor at Harvard. And he wrote a book talking about this, how, come on, sometimes the, the right thing to do is something that you would think would be the wrong thing to do. But he took it to its logical conclusion, and he ended up, like a lot of people, he ended up being an atheist and deciding that, all ethics are situational, that there's no such thing as an absolute right and wrong. Therefore, if there's no right and wrong, there's no God. And that's where he took it. Now, there are other people, the Pharisees are an example, of people who just think the, what's right is right, the rules are the rules, and you have to follow the rules. When Jesus came along, he's like, they're criticizing him for his disciples violating the Sabbath. He's like, wait a minute, guys. I mean... This isn't, the Sabbath was made to help people. 
It wasn't made for people to serve the Sabbath. And besides that, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. So can't you figure this out, that this wasn't the intention of the law, and therefore its obedience might be at a higher level of ethical standards than you really understand when you try to explain it simply? Now, we go, I mean, there are people who debate, for instance, Rahab in the Old Testament. She was a, um, you know, a prostitute in Jericho, and she hid the two Jewish spies and saved the nation as a result. And when the armies came around from Jericho, she lied. So what was it, right or wrong, for her to tell a lie? And there are some people who are so stuck in their, in their narrow-minded ethics that they say it was wrong, but God used it, and she probably repented later and said she was sorry. You don't see that in Scripture. She gets put into the, into the line of Christ. So... At the same time, people have that same debate about people who hid Jews, you know, during the time of Hitler. They'd come to your door. Do you have any Jews in your house? What do you say? Is, is truth always right? So should you go, yep, they're behind the cabinet in there. Sorry, I cannot tell a lie. Or do we go intuitively, don't we know that protecting people's lives is more important than telling something to somebody in a particular situation. Ethics is never that cut and dried and simple because there, sometimes a war is necessary. There are, we have a country because, and there are people who, John MacArthur says that the American Revolution was a sin because of Romans 13 that you have to submit to the government. But he's in, under questioning, he goes, but, I mean, we're really blessed because it happened, but those guys were sinning. Because you can't believe that at some point, in some way, resisting the government might be, which is ironic given his fights with the government over COVID and everything, but that's a whole different thing, different government, you know. But So when we're dealing with right and wrong, we have to understand, uh, it's kind of, there might be times when something is necessary that in another circumstance would really be wrong. So, I mean, for instance, if someone asks you, do these yoga pants make me look fat? <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, what do you say? You know, go ahead and answer that honestly and spend a lot of time alone. But <laughs> what makes the difference? See, they're still right and wrong, but... The Holy Spirit has an advantage in knowing exactly when the situation overrules the law, the rules. Now, if, if you don't understand that, you will never understand Jesus. You'll never understand most of what he said. And also, life will be a problem for you. There are some times when, you know, you need, and really part of why this is, remember this, God sees the future. Now, if I, you know, talking about the Jews, how about Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor in, in Germany who plotted to kill Hitler? Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer ended up being hung for that. But if he had accomplished it and saved millions of lives, would you criticize him for violating Romans 13? Now, what if you could travel through time? And you may think that traveling through time is impossible, but... You know, Jesus, for instance, says things like, before Abraham was, I am. Wow, it sounds like he has a different understanding of time than we might. 
you know, except for a few wackos on Joe Rogan, we're like, no, no, it doesn't happen that way. But God can see outside of time, in and out of time at the same time. He sees every consequence of every possibility that might happen. Now, would it make a difference? Like, if I could get in a, in a DeLorean and go back to the 1930s and kill Adolf Hitler and save 8 million Jewish lives, would that be wrong <laughs> or would that be right? But the catch is, we don't know. I can't look around today and decide who's the next Hitler. But God can see the future. So when God does something often, it's because he knows what would happen if he doesn't. And that's why I need to listen to the Holy Spirit instead of just following rules. Some of the most important things that you do in life are things that violate some rule because God was leading you to. Now, that could be an excuse always, but I remember one time years ago, and I'm sorry I get old, I repeat stories. I don't know if I've told you this story, but um, I was at Calvary, and I got one of the kids, a couple of the kids at school said, our mom's back in her apartment, and she says she's going to kill herself today. I'm like, oh. And I head over to her apartment, and she was in really bad shape. I sat there. I sang to her. I prayed, read the scriptures to her. I spent like half the day with her. And then she seemed like she was doing better. She finally turned up some of the lights. And, and um, so I go, okay. So I come back. Well, like two weeks later, Pastor Romaine came to me, and he pulls me aside, and he goes, did you go spend half a day in a dark apartment with a single woman with nobody even knowing who, where you were? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, don't you ever lose the ability to do something like that again. You saved that woman's life. I'm like, whoo. <laughs> there are plenty of rules I broke that didn't get that response from Romaine. But it registered that in that case, you know, rules are rules, but rules don't supersede when the Holy Spirit's leading you as to what to do. And so now you look at this circumstance. Just, I'm just hypothesizing here, but suppose, like what would have happened if they hadn't made peace with the Gibeonites? David's about to die. His son Solomon's going to take over. They've just been through two revolutions. They're, they're weak. The northern tribes are still not crazy about being ruled by somebody from Judah. The Gibeonites are living up there in the middle of where the northern tribes are. Now, what would have happened? And also, a lot of this you have to understand in light of these were collectivist cultures. We're individualistic culture. Like, if I didn't know one of my ancestors, I don't care about them. I'm like not, no offense to you Mormons, but I really don't care who my great-great-great-grandfather was, really, unless he left an inheritance. But <laughs> in, in most collectivist cultures, which is most of the world, and which was certainly all of history, a generation would find out about something that, was, that wronged their ancestors and it was like, you did it to me. And they would take it upon themselves. Wars were fought because of things that had happened 200 years before to their, to their ancestors. And so the Gibeonites could have been in a position moving forward where they could have done great damage to Israel. As it was, Solomon ended up getting along great with, most of, with the northern tribes. It was only after Solomon died that the north split off from the south. Part of that was because 
people like the Gibeonites were up there going, look, we're not even Jews, but these guys are good guys. They're honest. They screwed up and they made it right. And, you know, we're good with them. So did God know this needs to be fixed now because Solomon won't be able to fix it. He won't have the clout. And this is going to backfire on us unless right now we make peace with the Gibeonites. But the only way to make peace with the Gibeonites is for seven people to die. Now you go, but seven innocent people died. I don't know if they were innocent or not. They probably were, more or less. But, I mean, what's seven people compared to a war? How many people did they lose in these last two rebellions that they had, these last two civil wars? We lost more than seven people just running away from Afghanistan. So why are we acting? If, if, there, if you could avoid a war by seven innocent people dying, that's, it actually makes sense from an ethical standpoint. But there's another side to the coin that, I, that you should consider. Who's going to be a threat to the kingdom of David? Who's going to be a threat to Solomon as soon as David dies? <laughs> Number one, would probably be descendants of Saul. Because again, collectivist culture. They're like, our family should be king, and here's our opportunity. He's got this spoiled little guy who's a total womanizer and everything, and yeah, he's really smart, but he can't fight. And, and so this would have been a great opportunity for the descendants of Saul to bind together. Now suppose God looked at it and he knew that those seven descendants of Saul were going to destroy the nation, ultimately, the kingdom, well, would sacrificing seven of them to not only secure this issue with the family of Saul, but at the same time, secure the problem from the family of Gibeon, and only seven people die. It seems like a pretty good decision. Now, if you're saying, you're just making this up, yeah, I'm hypothesizing, but I'm suggesting at least one way that this might have been a brilliant thing to happen. And plus, when you look at any violence in the Old Testament, you have to, I mean, there are people who are just like, I don't want anything to do with the Old Testament. It's so violent. But you have to remember, God had one agenda from Genesis 3, and that is, how do I save these people? Which means everything that God did was for the greater good of how can I preserve the line of Messiah so that the one would come that had been prophesied about that he could bear the sins of everyone when he would die. Now, God had to do severe things at different times in history to rescue the line of the Messiah. And this was certainly a time when it looks like that happened. If the Gibeonites had pulled off a revolt, if the descendants of Saul had pulled off a revolt, what happens? to the genealogy, what happens to the line of Christ. So to me, it's like when we judge what God does, we're playing checkers. God's playing chess. He has a bigger picture in mind because he knows more. But if that's true then, it's true today. That, of course, in general, the things that we understand are right and wrong are right and wrong. I don't go violate the basic principles that the scripture gives us about what's right and what's wrong, but... I walk in the spirit and I ask God to show me. Now, if everything I do is an exception, I'm probably off the mark at that point. But if I'm hearing from God and God is saying, in this particular case, you need to vary from the ordinary 
and you need to do something that people may even judge you for it, but you're following my spirit. And it's one of the big reasons why I want to have the Holy Spirit moving in my life. It's what makes us more like Jesus and less like Pharisees, where I'm like, yeah, I'm, do, I'm generally observing this rule, but I'm also, if God tells me, I'll go out on a limb and realize that he's bigger than the rules, that the rules are there in general, but there are times when he makes an exception. And I'm not, as, I'm not totally comfortable with that, but it's a fact, and I could argue it throughout all of history and through rules. Now, so don't get me wrong. I'm not just saying, well, everything is about the situation. No, everything is about the Holy Spirit and what he is leading and what he is guiding. And if you're not walking in the Spirit, then your life is going to be a mess, even if you follow all the rules like a Pharisee. So anyway, then the rest of the chapter is this story, and oh, we're running out of time. But we'll do it anyway. The Philistines now come after David. They're starting to smell blood in the water. The Philistines haven't been a prominent issue ever since David was a teenager and he took their hero, Goliath, this giant, and he killed them, cut off his head, and you know, really humiliated those guys. Well, now Goliath's sons have grown up and they're giants too. One of them, it actually, it says he had six fingers and on each hand and six toes on each foot, which is like, I don't know why it said that. I, he probably had a hard time buying shoes and had an even harder time getting gloves. But it's like, it, it's like these guys were huge, and they were warriors. Now here you have another threat to the kingdom of Solomon. Philistines are over there on the coast. They're mad. Your, your dad killed my dad. And it's time for us to get back at you. Hey, Solomon, let's see how tough you are. Let's see who's going to fight for you. So they go, we better cut this off right now. We need to fix this. And so um, the Philistines were at war, and David and his servants with him went down, verse 15, against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Know that feeling where you're like, yeah, let's go get them and whoa, uh, hang on, give me a second here. You got any Gatorade or an energy drink or something so I can finish this? David's getting old. And he's like, he's ready to fight giants. But Abishai, his bodyguard, ended up saving his life, came to his aid, as it says. See, because this guy was ready to kill David because of what David did to his dad, Abishai helped him, killed this giant. And, um, and then the men of David said to him, okay, look, dude, you're not going to battle anymore lest you quench the lamp of Israel. You are still our leader, but you're, you don't have it as a fighter anymore. It's time to let the younger guys do the fighting. You go back home and pray for us. So he does. He's like, okay, yeah, I'm not feeling too good anyway. So, and, and then it, afterwards, there were three other sons of Goliath, and they were able to kill all of them. And these four, verse 22, were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So how does this story get bunched in with the other one? And why kill these giants now? It's been a long time. Well, in the same way, these guys are a huge threat. If you let the Philistines stay, especially with these four huge dudes, then as soon as David's gone... They're going to get what's theirs. 
They're like, you killed our dad. Now we're going to kill your kids. Again, that's the thinking in a collectivist culture. So in a very strategic time, towards the end of David's life, he understood, I better take care of these giants. The boys are getting bigger. They're huge. They're getting more and more angry. And I don't know what this is going to do. I certainly can't send this sissy Solomon with a sling and expect him to take these guys out. So while my fighters are still healthy, we better take them out and it can make things better for Solomon in the future. So again, protecting the messianic line and everything. So what does all this have to do with us ultimately? The, The thing I see about David here is that you have a feeling, again, this is like the end of his story. We're gonna see his last words given and then a few other little loose ends. He ends up dying in 1 Kings chapter one. But, you know, he's coming to the end and you get the feeling with David that he has a sense of that and he's trying to tie up some loose ends. Had he not taken care of the thing with the Gibeonites, had he not eliminated the descendants of Saul, had he not taken care of the Philistine giants, Who knows what would have happened after he was gone? So it's almost like he had a checklist and he goes, I'm going to take care of these things to tie up loose ends to make it better for the next generation. And, you know, for each of us personally, maybe there isn't somebody, you know, some major thing that we have to do. But do we understand that we're all on the clock? Whether you're older, whether you're younger, you have an expiration date. There's a time when you won't be here anymore. And what you do today, especially in terms of, and you can't live your life in the past, but if there are some loose ends that need to be taken care of that can prepare for the future, it's a good idea to do it. The time, I mean, like, the time to get rid of all your junk isn't like, let's leave it for the kids. They don't want, you know, sure, they may laugh at you when you're on hoarders, But it's like, why don't you just make things simpler for them? Do you have a bunch of debt that you're going to leave your kids to take care of? Do you have a house that's not practical for you in your final days? Are you, you know, what is it in your life that you're like, if I realize I have an expiration date, how am I going to live my life differently? Are there some strategic things? Are there people that nagging in the back of my mind is like, you know, I never apologized to that person. Or I never at least tried to reach out to him. Now, there are people that, a lot of times when you go to somebody and go, you know, I know you used to hate me, and, but I'm really sorry. And most of the time they're like, yeah, I still hate you. And I'm like, okay, good. Then I, as much as is possible with you, be at peace with all men, I've laid that to rest. I'm okay, I'm good with it. There are people that you try to reach out to that it just gets more and more evil back. But you go, okay, I'm way ahead of the scales of what I've tried to do to make that work. I can't make it work because I can't will someone else. But at least I'm looking at my life and going, how am I in some ways leaving the world a better place? How can I look at my life and go, when I look back, I'm gonna say, you know, I did certain things that made it possible for something good to happen later. This is something that for me as a pastor, you know, the older that I get, You know, several years ago, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on pastoral succession. So I've thought about that a lot, and I'm asked about it constantly, you know, every time, oh, you got another birthday coming up, (laughs) you know, and 
people are like wanting to check my pulse. But, and I mean, I honestly, I, don't, I feel like I'm still contributing and I feel like I'm still making sense more or less. In fact, in some ways it's even better because when I offend people now, they just think it's because I'm old and really it's just because that's who I've always been. But, you know, it's like at some point, I don't want to be the guy that's just up here drooling and people are, yeah, I remember back in the day, you know, he was really something. No, I mean, ever since I was young, people have been telling me when they meet me, they've heard me on the radio for years and they're surprised because they thought I was really young. I sound young, I look old. But it's like, at some point I have to go, what's the best thing that I can do? And that's something as a church that I ask myself, how can I prepare younger people and do things that will last beyond me while at the same time being faithful to do what I'm able to do. Because one day I'll step into the battle and I'll feel faint like David and it'll be like, you know what, I think you're good. The scary thing is as you get older, you lose your ability to, to see your own weaknesses and that's weird, but life is fast, man. It goes by so quick. Again, as somebody, my 70th birthday, some of you think, oh, 70 is nothing. I'm way older than that. Good for you, but you haven't abused yourself like I am, so maybe you'll live longer than me. But I don't know. I, I haven't been diagnosed with anything that's supposed to kill me. But I realize it just seems like yesterday when I was a kid. And now here I am. There's three girls sitting down here that, that were in my first youth group that I taught 50 years ago. And they all look like 30 now, which is really <laughs> tripping me out. But what are you doing? to tie up your loose ends. Is there something in your life that it'd be a good idea to resolve, to pay that off, to simplify that, to just talk to that person and resolve something with them? That's an opportunity that we have. I, at the Together, I shared one of my favorite stories that Steve Jobs, when he, he did the convo, convocation address at, at Stanford University, he said, years ago I heard somebody say that if you live every day like it's your last, Someday you'll be right. And then he said, what I've done for the last decade or two is that I look at myself in the mirror every morning and I say, what I'm planning on doing today, is this what I would do if this were the last day of my life? And he said, if I have too many days in a row when my answer is no, then I need to change things up. I need to make some adjustments. And I think the story of David is a great time for us to consider that. What am I doing with my life now? Is there something unresolved that I can at least put the effort out? Is there something that I can do that might help somebody who's younger along the way? Is there something I can do that can make life easier for the next generation? And that needs to become our priorities if we're going to live our lives in the way that God would have us to do it. And if you're thinking like that, good for you. If you're not, if you're just like, I'm just hanging in there, seeing how long I last, waiting to die, life is too important for that. Or if you're young, people die young. I mean, it may be that all you get to do in life is what you do this week, and then it might be all over with. So we should always be considering, in light of what matters most, what am I doing with my life? In light of what's most important to me, what is it that I would want to do? And sometimes it's not just always like, oh, deep spiritual things. It's, I mean, yesterday I went to my granddaughter's soccer game. I hate soccer, but I love my grandkids. 
And it was like a typical soccer game. It ends up zero to zero. And yet, if I died right after that game, there's no other way I would have spent that time because it's so important, it's so valuable, it's so special to experience those kinds of things. For each one of us, we need to ask the question, are there some loose ends I need to tie up in life? We should always be ready to go because someday for sure we will. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us stories that twist our thinking, for having people who seem to be innocent sacrificed to bring good weather and to bring peace and to bring a future, just so that we wrestle with the ethics of the whole thing and begin to understand and realize that we can trust you because you have a reason for everything that you do. And it isn't a reason of weakness, it's a reason of strength. Teach us to make our choices, not by following rules like a Pharisee, but by being aware of rules and valuing them, but listening to your spirit as to how you might lead us in what we do in our lives. And may we be constantly in the process of tying up loose ends because we don't know when our time is up. Thanks, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. You know, if you're here and you're not even sure where you stand with the Lord, or you're just going through some pain, maybe this jogged something in your mind that you'd like somebody to pray for you, there are people down here in the front who would love to pray with you. And they can answer some of the questions that you might have and just agree with you in prayer and support you in the decisions that you're making in your life with your loose ends. So please come on down after the service if you'd like some prayer. Um, A few announcements I have here. Um, This Tuesday is the Soup Kitchen Outreach. So if you've seen pictures of it before between services, but um, if you'd like to participate in that, it's a real rewarding time. It's one of those things that if you do it, you'd never regret spending that time knowing that God used you to bless people who are going through a tough time. So, you know, you might not be the type of person to do that, but ask yourself why. And if you decide I should do it at least once, then you can contact Nate at nate at ccpacifichills.org and he can explain to you how you can how you can share in that time on Tuesday and then um, they asked me to mention our e-bulletins we don't bombard people with a bunch of a bunch of emails and so what we do is we put out an e-bulletin every Thursday and if you receive that it'll tell you all the events that are coming up in the future and fill you in on all the details. So if you're not getting our e-bulletin and you'd like to, you can go to our webpage and just click sign up for e-bulletin and you know you get those sent to you every Thursday. And I think, but I'm not sure, that you'll also get my one-minute messages uh, if you're signed up for the e-bulletin. I think that comes every day. So uh, at least I get them regularly and I never subscribe, so I'm assuming that's why. But... Um, So go on there and check it out. And then our prayer wall on the webpage. One of the best things that we do, if you know somebody that needs prayer, you want prayer yourself, you can go on the webpage and just say, make a prayer request. And you can put what it is that you'd like people to pray for. And other people will look and and read the prayer request. And when they pray for your prayer request, they'll click the button that says, I prayed for this. And then the people who made the prayer request, they're not going to have your contact information at all, but 
They'll know that somebody prayed for them. And I know when I've put prayer requests on there, I'm so blessed when I then get emails telling me that people are praying for it. And at the same time, I'll, have, I'll spend a few minutes on there just praying for people. And, and so it's really a cool way to do community online. And uh, so I'd encourage you to check that out as well. Well, again, come on down if you need some prayer. I pray that this week will be a time when you begin to think about and assess the things that are more important than just immediately, that you'll begin to get a perspective and follow as God leads you to live a life that's what it's worth, not just something that you're settling for. The Lord bless thee thee. and keep thee. thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. God bless you.